As you've opened up to Exodus 19, we come to a milestone in Israel's journey. The promised land will come later, but for now, about three months, we're told, after leaving Egypt, Israel has arrived at her promised mountain. Moses and the people have reached the base of Mount Sinai on a plain in front of the peak of this great mountain. Israel's journey was always intended to head to this place. This is the exact location where Moses was commissioned before the burning bush. This is the very place where God promised they would come as a sign of their freedom. Moses would return here with God's redeemed people. Certainly I will be with you, and this shall be a sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall worship God at this mountain. And now here they are. Returning to Sinai was the fulfillment of God's promise, another reinforcement of the Lord's faithfulness to his word. As the Israelites begin to set up camp at the foot of the mountain, they have no idea that they will remain at this location for a while, nearly a year. The rest of the events recorded in Exodus, Leviticus, and the first 11 chapters of the book of Numbers all take place here at Mount Sinai. And all of what is to come begins with a very special and unique encounter. And just in case, as we read, you weren't looking at your watch. After Passover, a time that will later be called Pentecost. Moses is about to ascend up the mountain to receive God's word. The Lord is about to come down to be with his people. Beloved, let us begin to enter into this unique divine encounter, which will become the pivotal moment in Exodus and the whole Torah. From Exodus chapter 19, hear the word of the Lord. In the third month after the Israelites left Egypt, on the very day they came to the desert of Sinai. After they set out from Rephidim, they entered the desert of Sinai, and Israel camped there in the desert in front of the mountain. Then Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, This is what you are to say to the house of Jacob, and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt, and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. So Moses went back and summoned the elders of the people and set before them all the words the Lord had commanded him to speak. The people all responded together. We will do everything the Lord has said. So Moses brought their answer back to God. The Lord said to Moses, I am going to come to you in a dense cloud so that the people will hear me speaking with you and will always put their trust in you. Then Moses told the Lord what the people had said. And the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow. Have them wash their clothes and be ready by the third day, because on that day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. Beloved, this is the word of the Lord. 
Thanks be to God. You know, in these last few months, <laughs> it seems sometimes like our world is barely holding together. You turn on the news and you're bombarded sometimes by all the devastation and the chaos. I mean, from earthquakes and tsunamis in Japan to civil war in Libya to tornadoes and floods consuming parts of our own nation, it can be depressing to take it all in. And, and perhaps this is one of the reasons that a couple of weeks ago, the, the attention of the entire planet seemed to drift, to shift towards something different. A wedding. A royal wedding. The long-anticipated union of Prince William and Kate Middleton. For a brief moment, millions of people, we're told, around the globe escaped the misfortune of their own circumstances by basking in the anticipation, the promise, the celebration of two lives becoming one. Now, if you watched any of the royal wedding, if you watched any of the interviews with the various spectators of the ceremony, it was almost as if the joy of one couple became the hope of all the world. And while those expectations, when we step back, those kind of expectations might be too much of a burden for Will and Kate, I believe that what we have just read is exactly that kind of royal engagement. The kind of royal engagement upon which the hope of the whole world does rest. What we have here in Exodus is a divine proposal intended not just for Israel, but for all humanity through Israel. The words that the Lord speaks here through Moses serve as a preamble, as we know, to the giving of the law, the Ten Commandments. Most of us, therefore, tend to skip this chapter and dive right into the thou shalls and thou shall nots. And so we hear God's voice as he gives the people the law as only that of a judge. His tone is distant and firm. His words are perceived as strict and stern. We envision many of us a crusty old king with a long gray beard, with a hardened look in his eyes, thundering down his commands from heaven onto the people. Ironically, not unlike our bulletin cover. Now, while this might be the stereotypical picture of God, it is, for many people, a prevalent one. Until the arrival of Jesus, of course. And there's much to support this, perceiving this conversation, what we have here, in legal terms, of imagining Mount Sinai as being transformed into some kind of giant courtroom with God behind the bench and the people in the dock. Moses is told to say to the people, now if you will obey me and keep my covenant. And back in the day, a covenant or a berit, as it was called in Hebrew, was a binding agreement between parties. In fact, scholars have noted looking at this chapter that the exchange that happens here between the Lord and the Israelites follows a pattern of ancient Near Eastern treaties between a king and his subjects. The king initiated and spelled out the terms of his reign, what he expected of his subjects, and in return, what he would do for them if they honored the treaty. And in many ways, this fits what is happening before us here. 
My brothers and sisters in Christ, the Hebrew word for covenant, berit, has a much richer meaning than this. Berit is perhaps one of the most significant words in all of Scripture. It is a word that has much more to do with relationship than it does with mere legal negotiations. Therefore, how we understand this word, how we understand this covenant, what takes place here is foundational to our understanding of who we are as God's people, of whom this God is that we worship. So I want you to indulge me this morning. I want you to indulge me this morning in hearing these words a little differently, in picturing this scene a little differently. Do not see a harsh judge or a sterile courtroom this morning. Do not look at the picture on the front of your bulletin this morning. Instead, hear the words of a long-suffering groom. Hear the words of a long-suffering groom who is wooing his intended to fall in love and hold nothing back from him. Picture instead an eager lover on his knees proposing to his bride, beckoning her to commit her life, her fortune, her future into his hands. My brothers and sisters in Christ, you are cordially invited to the engagement party of Yahweh and his beloved people, Israel. Yahweh initiates his proposal by first reminding his beloved of all that he has done for them as a people. He reminds the Israelites that he saved them from the Egyptians. An image of being carried on eagles' wings is given to convey the means by which the Lord rescued and cared for his intended. Now, I'm not sure if you're familiar with how eagles operate with their young, but when a mother eagle is teaching her young to fly, she first alters the nest by removing all the moss that lines the bottom as a protective cushion from the sharp branches. What was once routine and homey becomes uncomfortable, thus motivating the eaglets to leave the nest. The mother eagle will literally nudge her young out of the safety of the nest in order to test their wings. As her young experience their first freefall, she keeps a close eye on them. If they waver or flounder in midair, the mother eagle will swoop down under them and bear them, bear them up on her own strong wings. The Lord brought his people out of Egypt as this kind of majestic, nurturing presence, willing to shoulder, willing to protect, to guide them into his arms. Before God asks for a commitment, he appeals to Israel to see this truth with her own eyes. The Lord emphasizes the intimacy of their relationship. My intentions did not come secondhand or by the testimony of others, he declares. You were there. You experienced my salvation, the depths of my love for you. God presses further as he underscores his motivation for setting the Israelites free. The Lord expresses that his purpose was not just to get Israel out of Egypt, to get his people somewhere else. His ultimate goal and destination was to bring them to someone, to himself. I brought you to myself. The Lord further tells the Israelites that if they embrace his proposal, 
If they keep his covenant, they will be his treasured possession. The groom labors to convey to his bride that she is desired, that she is wanted. This God doesn't want us blindly stepping forward and making promises of commitment before any of us take vows to follow Christ. This God wants us to step back and take a long, measured look to the cross to see what he did to break the powers of hell, to understand the amazing love behind our rescue from sin and death. And my brothers and sisters in Christ, we will never be able to receive the Lord's proposal if we do not understand our worth to him. Saying yes to this God is being able to say, I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine. Out of this love and keeping with his promise, the bridegroom has brought his bride to this place. Through this union, all that the groom has will become the bride's. Israel, God declares, will become a kingdom of priests. As a people, they will be uniquely set apart to share God's life and blessings with all the other nations. By marriage, a commoner, an ordinary nation will become a holy nation. While all other nations will build their kingdoms based on their own power, their own ability to control, Israel's existence will depend on something else entirely. Grace. And while it's true, as I say the word grace, and if you look, are looking carefully at the scriptures that we have this morning, while it's true that the Lord's covenant with Israel, as, it, as it's expressed here, involves contingencies, God will bless the people if they obey him, the original basis, the foundation for this wedding proposal is God's amazing grace. For this covenant does not start here. This has been an arranged marriage for some time. The Lord references this when he calls his people the descendants of Jacob. God is reminding them of the family they had come from, of a promise that was made long ago. The basis of that promise was grace. The Lord worked and saved Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Israel, not on the basis of a mutual arrangement, not because of good works, but on the foundation of God's faithfulness and mercy. Israel's deliverance, her rescue, has nothing to do with Israel's ability and has everything to do with Israel's desirability to this God. Through Israel, heaven will come down to earth, not because she builds a ladder, not because she is better than the rest, but because God promises his grace. In anticipation of exchanging vows, the groom tells the bride to get ready. The Lord clothes himself in a dense, dark cloud, his formal black attire, if you will. Meanwhile, the people prepare themselves by getting washed up, by making themselves presentable. As with most weddings, they put on their best. They take off their old garments, their former life that they have known, and they put on new clothes as a way of acknowledging the significance. 
the change that this union with this God is going to make in their lives. In their indescribable joy and awe, the Israelites consecrate themselves. In the nervousness and yet anticipation of every bride, they set themselves apart for this God. Their presentation and their posture is mirrored by the words, the single sentence that they shout with one voice in response to this divine proposal. All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. What else can we imagine that they, that we would say before such an offering of love, before such a faith-filled and gracious promise? What is before us is in many ways the stuff of fairy tales come true, of wishful thinking turned into perfect reality. 400 years of bondage, fearing for your life, sometimes believing you were better off dead, 400 years of living with a wicked stepmother. And suddenly, it's a Cinderella story. You were once living in darkness, and now light has come, and the light itself declares that it is yours forever. Six weeks in the wilderness, desolation, drought, harsh living all around you. It got so bad you even grumbled that you were better off back in prison, back with your wicked stepmother. Back in the nightmare of your oppression. Six weeks of rehab, of going cold turkey, of cold sweats and hot flashes, of kicking the habit of Egypt and learning the way of the Lord. And now, here you are at the door of heaven. Instead of a slave master, you found a prince, you found a husband. The creator and the redeemer of the universe is offering you his hand. So with free consent and total abandon, you pledge your heart, your life to him. All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. What else can they say? And yet, it won't take long before the Israelites break the very vows that they have spoken here. The ink on the marriage documents won't be dry. The honeymoon won't even have started. And Israel will give her heart away to a golden calf. She will cheat. She will whore herself to a God of her own making. Oh, the hindsight of history reveals to us the tragic naivete of those words, both back then and still now. For, beloved, we are no less adulterous in our relationship with this God. We commit ourselves to Christ, but then we turn around and we dictate the terms of our life with him. We want relationship with this God, but we want it on our terms, according to our schedule, according to our priorities, according to our availability. Like the Israelites, we are no less willing to go further, to divorce ourselves from this God. We talk outside of worship. We talk in conversations over coffee, as we listen to the radio, as we read the paper, we get fired up. We pride ourselves on our freedom. 
political, economic, moral freedom, believing that we can exercise similar freedom when it comes to Jesus. We pay lip service to the words of this God. We offer up generic prayers of thanksgiving and petitions. All the while, we forget. We forego the holiness, the distinctiveness, the singularity of this God. In the beauty and majesty of this scene here in Exodus 19, this incredible love scene, we still cannot miss the vastly different nature of the parties involved. This is not an engagement between equals. It is the coming together of the author of life, the one whom no person has seen, and Israel, a people broken in body, grumbling in spirit, and unclean in heart. What makes this proposed union so remarkable is the vast moral chasm between the groom and the bride. To say that Israel, that we are marrying up when we embrace this God is a gross understatement. All of the protocols outlined here in the remainder of the chapter are designed to prepare Israel for her groom, to make her holy, so that she will be able to stand in the presence of this God who is wholly other. We read them and they seem strict, they seem harsh, it doesn't seem like a wedding. God warns the people, however, to take this seriously. And if you can think back to your wedding day, didn't you take that seriously? God, I hope you did. Didn't you take seriously, maybe not what was going on, but what that day was about? What you were saying? Who you were saying it to? Who you were saying it in front of? What that would mean for the rest of your life? Did you pause when you said, till death do us part? Beloved, can we? Do we take our relationship with this God for granted? How often do we try and put this God on a shelf or in our pocket? It doesn't take much to domesticate this God. All you have to do is turn him into a cosmic Santa Claus rather than the Alpha and the Omega. All you have to do is reduce Jesus to being your BFF, your best friend forever, rather than the Lord of heaven and earth. All you have to do is make the Holy Spirit your own personal good luck charm or magic genie. Think of someone you admire. Picture in your mind right now, someone you admire, a famous person, a celebrity, a VIP. Picture that person in your mind. Someone when they, there's news or they speak, you pay attention, you want to know. Sports figure, actor, politician, whatever. Think of someone that you admire. If I were to announce to you this morning that that person would be speaking to you next week at church, none of you would be late. None of you would leave early. You'd be anticipating it, anticipate being here all week. You'd rearrange your calendar, which is just so booked up. You'd rearrange your calendar to be here. Most of you would be here early. Now that's a shock. And yet, in the midst 
of what's going on this morning in our midst this morning, speaking to us through word and sacrament. Meeting us in prayer and worship is the king of the universe, our creator and our redeemer. Do we realize where we are? Not the building, but when we come together, whose presence we're invoking. Who is present when we gather? If we did, how could we dare enter casually or late or even keep our cell phones on? If Israel was consumed with awe, if they could feel the mountains tremble, why don't we? We are nonchalant. We shrug our shoulders rather than raise our hands. Because time and time again, beloved, we make this God smaller rather than allowing him to overwhelm us. We undervalue his words of love, his promise of healing, his touch of grace, rather than being driven to our knees by them. My brothers and sisters in Christ, one of the reasons many of us do not experience the depths of the love of God is that we do not comprehend his holiness. We should be struck with amazement. Our mouths should drop as we realize that the Lord willingly commits himself to the Israelites despite their lack of faith and persistent testing in the wilderness with eyes fully open, well aware that this was a stiff-necked, stubborn people. Yahweh doesn't hesitate to be joined in this relationship. Where most of us would have cold feet, God stands firm. And this is not an action of impulse. This God knows full well what he's signing up for, and yet as flawed as she is, as flawed as we are, he offers her, he offers us an exclusive, everlasting relationship like no other on earth. The truth is, to really get to it, what we have here is more than what we would call an engagement. You know, nowadays, the initial commitment that two people make before a wedding ceremony is what we would call an engagement. And it's often treated as nothing more than mere thoughts, as intended plans that stand on the shaky ground of the continued desire of the two individuals. That'll become a reality only if both people still feel that way at the altar. Not so with this God. We are not engaged in Christ to this God in some vague, uncertain relationship, subject to the changing winds of emotions or feelings. What is before us is not an engagement, but what was known, once known as a betrothal. Long ago, every Jewish marriage began with a betrothal, a sacred ceremony of intentions and commitment that was considered binding. Back then, a divorce was required to undo a betrothal. We have witnessed the Lord bind himself to these people to make vows to us. We have been given a permanent pledge, my brothers and sisters in Christ, an unshakable covenant established long ago from the foundation of the world and ratified most profoundly in blood on a cross at Calvary. 
As we continue here at Mount Sinai, I, just as an aside, I want to encourage you to keep this image of a betrothal before us as we interpret what will happen next in subsequent chapters. Because after a betrothal, back, back, back long ago, it was customary for the bridegroom to build a house for his bride. It was often an extension of the family's home. And when the bride's father approved of the house, he paid a dowry and the wedding ceremony would begin. Seven glorious days of consummation and feasting concluded the marriage. The whole process would take about a year. From this chapter through Numbers chapter 10, Israel will spend almost a year at Mount Sinai. God, the bridegroom, will provide a home for his bride, a place where they can live together. He will bring the Israelites to the promised land, their home where they can dwell together forever. But this God will also oversee the construction of a house, the tabernacle, so that he can dwell with his bride in intimacy. As the bride, the Israelites will present a dowry, the gifts that they received from the Egyptians on their way out. That wedding present will be the means by which the tabernacle is built. And God, the bridegroom, will also provide a wedding gift. The Ten Commandments, carved into stone by God himself, written in God's own hand. A betrothal, a wedding, exciting times are ahead. The Apostle Peter quotes these words. He quotes these words from Exodus 19. He quotes these words as spoken by the Lord at Mount Sinai in one of his letters to the church. Addressed to believers scattered throughout the Roman Empire, Peter reminds us, in case you don't believe me this morning, that this divine proposal is for us too. While it's true that even with the best of intentions, proper motivation, focus, and purpose, the best of human vows will fail, Peter wants to remind us that the love of our groom remains tenacious. In Christ, Peter tells us that Jesus took on our role as the bride as well as the bridegroom. Obeying the voice of God fully, Jesus has faithfully kept the covenant, Peter declares. By his sacrifice, he has made our broken vows, our imperfect love, whole. And as a result, the contingency clause that we see here in Exodus 19, the big if, has been removed and so Peter declares to us, not conditionally, but absolutely, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own people. As we look back to the pages of Exodus, my brothers and sisters in Christ, as we prepare to come to this table yet again this morning, do you hear the King of Kings declaring his intentions? yet again, to spend all eternity with us? Our bridegroom is whispering this morning his promises, promises that he has made, promises he still intends to keep. How can we dare resist such a good love story? Beloved, we are part of the greatest love story of all time. It begins when God comes down from the mountaintop only to be willingly put up on the cross. It continues as this same God rises from the ashes of rejection and breaks through the tomb of our stone-cold hearts. And it will all end 
when this same Jesus returns to carry us across the threshold of eternity. Like the greatest love stories, it will end only to begin anew. Beloved, beloved, before us is a divine proposal, a royal engagement, a promise has been made that will never be broken. It can only be rejected or ignored. What God has joined together, let no man put asunder. But let us not leave such love unrequited. Let us together make our response. Our bridegroom is coming. Such an encounter demands that we prepare ourselves, that we get cleaned up. That we change the patchwork garments of our life and put on the clothes of our salvation. As this Jesus offers us his hand, let us give him our devotion. Let us walk together down the aisle of grace with confidence but with reverence. Let us go through the doors of his sanctuary and follow him out into the world that he gave his life to rescue. As Christians, we have a job to do. As his bride, we are not ready until all the nations have been invited into this royal engagement. Our wedding dress will not fit. The ceremony will not begin until every eye has seen, until every tongue declares the mighty acts of our bridegroom, of this God who has called us out of darkness into light, of this great lover who draws us to himself. Amen? Amen. Amen.